0: This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. In this episode, I speak with Crystal Hershorn. Crystal leads platform, SRE, and developer experience at Snake. In this episode, she shares the story behind the developer experience group, including how they came up with their name, how she calculates the cost of the problems they solve, and how they partner with engineering teams. Welcome to the show, Crystal. It's great to have you today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, I know you've been at Snyk now for almost two years and just recently formed a DX team, I think you mentioned three months ago. So I'd love to hear about the sort of impetus or pro journey your group went through to start this team.
1: Yep. As you said, I've been at Sneak just coming up for two years. It wasn't the team that I started off with. We are a very small group of just two engineers in the earliest days, um, and now we have uh, three teams. DX is our, or DevX is our most recent team. As you said, only starting three months ago, we kind of went through a journey to try and get to this point. It's also, you know, it's not just about, is my part of the org ready, but is the wider R&D kind of organization ready for a developer experience team? And what does that mean? Like what's their remit? What's their charter? What's the vision for that team? It's kind of right time, right place. And the reason why it was the right time, right place is because Sneak has been growing really rapidly. Well, when I started two years ago, I should say, there were about hundred engineers at that time. Today we have about 350. So it's been quite a rapid growth in a couple of years. The other kind of exciting pieces that underpin that as well is that uh, my cloud platforms team built a internal uh, runtime and developer platform which we call Polaris, which powers kind of all of Sneak, And it means that we've gone from one production instance to many, many instances. Now we have a second multi-tenant region as of a couple of days ago, which my team launched, and lots of single-tenant instances for big enterprise customers. So it's like, okay, well, now that we have all of that, <laughs> we need probably to think about internal developer experience for this.
0: Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I'm curious to dig in more. You know, from your perspective, has this creation of the DX team, has it been more of a sort of rebranding of things you're already doing or reclarifying the things you're already doing? Or was this really a, a new investment and in new sort of efforts and initiatives within Sneak?
1: I would challenge that a DevX team is entirely new investment. The reason why I say that is because I've been in engineering now 20 years, and what I have seen time and again in every organization I've been in, is that you'll often have a, especially in the early days when you grow rapidly, you kind of have this hero culture or engineers, which it's a bit of a derogatory term, but I think it, it sums it up nicely, which is the janitorial engineer who kind of really cares about something in particular, like the CI pipeline or good standards or good testing. And then you'll find as you grow that you often don't have those core teams around those practices and then you really need them. (laughs) And so then you start to think organizationally, like how should we define that kind of carve out that remit from things that aren't really, you know, properly being invested in the wider kind of R and D organization. So I'd say that I challenge that it's ever a completely new investment, but for sneak, it's never had a developer experience team. It's never had a productivity team. It's never had an engineering enablement team. So it's kind of like forging a path for hopefully more of those kind of teams to to come.
0: That's really fascinating. And you'd mentioned to me before that there was sort of like an intentional naming process, developer experience. So I'm curious, what was that process?
1: I considered a lot of names. And the reason why I chose developer experience in the end is because I felt like it kind of encapsulates the spirit of what we want to do. It's like, it's to try and improve the lives of our engineers, make their lives better, develop faster, have more joy in their day-to-day work as well. And so it centers the developer in the mission of the team. There are other team names that could have happened like engineering productivity, production operations. There's lots of different uh, namings for this. The thing that I would say, though, is developer experience is sufficiently vague that people will think it's all things to all people. One of the things we did to kind of counteract that, because that did start to happen a little bit, is that we had just done a monthly presentation to all of R&D two days ago to say, what is DevEx? What's our charter? What have we done so far? What will we be doing for you? And what do we care about which is you the engineer and please come talk to us so that was a really nice kind of way of framing what are we doing and what's our remit early on
0: i'm glad that's top of mind for you because that was the next question i had which is (laughs) you mentioned the sort of mission and branding of your group is all around making developers lives better what's the charter in terms of maybe more elaborate than that and how do you envision achieving it
1: so the couple things that we've done so far is we've got our mission statement uh, which is always a good thing. And it's something like making a sneak a pleasure to kind of develop within and intuitive and safe paved paths. So those were two statements that came together. The cool thing that we did there as well is that I said, okay, it's not just about what we perceive we should be. We should go out and ask a bunch of engineers about our mission statement when we get to a place where we think there's a draft. lots of great feedback, even just on that, just to say, "Mm, this word doesn't quite make sense. And hey, have you thought about this? And actually, this is what I'd quite like from a DevX team. It's interesting and challenging coming up with a a really short mission statement, but it was good to kind of get that feedback and land on something that everybody felt good about as well. The second thing that we did most recently is domain modeling. So domain-driven design. We have just finished our entire group's the main model. So all three teams did uh, event storming, and that was really good because that really clarified not only which team owns what, but like, what is the remit of DevEx? It could be so many things. And what does it mean for this company? It's always going to be contextual. So for us, it was like centering ourselves around the developer platform that I mentioned earlier and making a great experience around that. And also we want to bring something like Backstage, Spotify's Backstage, which is a open source project into the mix as a developer portal, and that will be another big piece of their remit. But that also extends to other things where, you know, why I bandied about these names, which is like CI CD, having ownership around that, but developing the tooling that makes CI CD really, really intuitive and kind of easy to use, lots of observability insight into it as well, because that's where we spend a large portion of our working day as engineers. And often it's fraught with problems in terms of like understanding, debugging what's going on at that step in the process. And so, yeah, just trying to make that much more robust.
0: Yeah, I'm curious as you sort of went around the company and you mentioned you kind of shopped your charter and sort of mission with developers and had those conversations. I'm curious, what kinds of questions or maybe excitement did you get back? And I'm curious, what did you learn about what really is impacting developers the most? Was it, I'm curious if your hypotheses around like CI, CD was you know, fully validated? Or were there other things that were brought up that surprised you?
1: Yeah. So I guess because it was a charter, we haven't done what I would like to do, which is in, internal surveys that will come next. And that's something I think is a really important aspect because you need the qualitative data and feedback from the engineers. But because this is more positioned as a, how, what do you think about our charter um, specific, or our, sorry, our mission statement specifically, we didn't have as much feedback yet, but Having said that, we are pairing with lots of teams already, so we're trying to see exactly how does the work happen on the ground. We also have a what I call the front door, which is our internal um, Slack channel, which is an ask channel. And so we can start to see like what our engineer is bringing up in terms of frustration points or things that are kind of thematically coming up again and again, where it's like, well, if we just put a bit of automation here, we could solve this problem and nobody would ever have to think about it again. Because a huge part of DevX is reducing cognitive load. And other things is that we had talked about this before, but like instrumenting some DORA metrics as well into the pipeline, the CICD pipeline, actually all the way through, in fact, so that we can see what do the engineers perceive in terms of the things that we're trying to track through DORA, like change failure rate, or how long does a, a commit take to get to production versus the actual, and how often does that fail? So that's been really interesting and insightful um, because we found... As well through doing that, that actually you know kind of our CI pipeline that runs through our monolith, which are we're in the middle of decomposing, fails more often than people had perceived potentially, <laughs> and so it was good for us to kind of distinctively kind of break down. Okay, well, what does failure actually mean in a, in a CI pipeline? What are those states? And you know, is it flaky tests? Is it actually build a failing? Is it some sort of uh, race condition where there's different pipelines competing? And commits of getting out of order and kind of try and break that down so the engineers can see that more specifically. And then that's the kind of thing like gathering that data and then going back and validating with the engineers like, okay, we, like this quarter we think these are the top three things that we should be solving and then going out and kind of validating whether or not engineers actually think these are areas that need the investment right now or if it's something else that's actually much more painful.
0: That's a really fascinating story. I'm curious to know, when you said that the perception was actually better than the reality, what was the sort of perceptive data point? Was it just based on some conversations you had? People hadn't really like told you that it wasn't that bad? And then you looked and I'm curious just to dig a little deeper into what you kind of took away from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, monoliths are interesting, right? Because it means that everybody has to flow through them in terms of their development process. And, you know, there's always angst, I think, with monoliths regardless. And that always comes through a bit. But what's interesting, I think, is nobody had perceived just how often our pipelines are failing around that monolith as well. Like people kind of knew that, yes, sometimes it's annoying and sometimes it's bad. But also, I think it shined a light on some like things that we probably should spend more effort on and more investment around things like flaky tests, for instance, it's like, it's a broken window scenario, right? So there's a lot of that that happens inside organizations. And it's like, okay, people become adjusted to the way things are. And because nobody has a specific remit to fix this problem, hence why we should have a team like DX, (laughs) is that uh, people start to get adjusted to the broken window. They're like, yeah, yeah, that window over there is broken, but it's been like that forever. I think the same thing can be said about CI CD pipelines often. It just made me think, okay, well, we can shine the light on where our practices are it could could be better, but also specifically say, like, here we probably need to focus a little bit more on our testing practices. Like it, it's probably not okay that the same tests fail over and over in the pipeline because that affects everyone. Anytime there's a delay in that pipeline, you're actually causing a delay to everyone else. So it's it's kind of that cost of delay mindset.
0: Yeah. And I know you have sort of project or story on that, that I'd love to get to, but I think you also, I remember you telling me that you got started with DX at Sneak, that builds were failing 70 to 80% of the time. Was that the number you'd shared or is that kind of where you're at on the journey right now?
1: It's one of those things where, when we said, okay, we were trying to be very specific about facts, right? We didn't want to put too much of our own judgment on top of that, because that can be really fraught for engineers, especially a DX team trying to establish itself. But it was like, let's just put some insight on this. So we said, okay, well, we can break these down into different types of failures, failure states. And, you know, one of the, and yeah, so what happened there about 70% of the time, it was what we considered a failure state. And so you think, wow, that is significant. That's a lot of cost to us that means also that's a higher degree of pain for our engineers and they're gonna be frustrated a lot. So it's like, what can we do about this? Okay, well, we can take this data to the SVP of engineering and the chief product officer and say, hey, it's a problem over here. You probably need to invest in this somehow, whether that's through a working group or another mechanism, but um, we need to make that time investment and that tooling investment to make the lives of our engineers better. And I'd say, like, our SVP of engineering has been a really great sponsor of a lot of this work. He's actually been pushing for this for quite a long time. So it's also good to have that advocate at that level and that sponsor who can then, you know, make those decisions around, okay, reallocation of resources to try and fix problems, like, because they're systemic problems, essentially.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And, on the topic of sort of going the executive sponsors and sort of making the business case for investments in improvements, how have you approached that? And I know you shared a story of this sort of cost of delay model you once created for quantifying tech debt. So I'd love to hear more about that as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think what I was saying before is in my previous role, I was a VP of engineering. And so I set several layers above the day-to-day work of engineers. I still tried to be very accessible to the engineers anyway. So I sat on the floor with them, would go around and talk to them quite a bit, and I would have engineers come up to me and say, it's frustrating how little time we're spending on technical debt. It feels like product just wants to ship features all the time. I just thought like this conversation never gets us anywhere. I've been in engineering a long time and there's no data here. It's a conversation that's fruitless and it often leaves engineers feeling like they're not heard. And so I thought there must be a way that we can try and measure this, quantify this in some way. And I need to try and help coach some of these engineers because some of them were like my lead engineers like as well. And it's like, well, so at this level, we need to kind of work out how you can start advocating for this this type of work and this class of problems and putting that alongside um, product work as well. And so we um, came up with a framework of uh, trying to to measure what we could and trying to say, okay, well, let's write a one, two page business case. One of the things that I shared with you before, which we'd done at sneak, this wasn't in my previous role, but at sneak, which I thought was really cool, which is we built a model called the cost of delay. And one of the books that I reference when I talk about this is uh, a book called how to measure anything. And it's something like defining the intangibles in business and it's a great book it's a really great book i would recommend it it might look like a dry read but actually it has completely changed my perception about measuring at work because often we'll say we'll throw up our hands and say well you can't measure that and actually it turns out you can <laughs> and this book is very good at like making the argument for that but also giving you the tools and the models to try and measure something because it's all about like reducing the amount of either the like risk the quantity of unknown right so it's like trying to get you closer and closer to to something that's a you know the best estimate but anyway we wrote this cost of delay model and it basically quantified things like how many engineers do we have we use circle ci so our runners how much does that cost every time we perform a, a, a ci run what are the docker images that we use there what's the cost of those what's an engineer's kind of average salary, <laughs> things like that. And then saying, okay, well, if we have 300 enge- or if we have a hundred engineers, cause we wrote it back in the day, what happens if our build takes 20 minutes? What happens if it takes 30 minutes, 40 minutes? And then we also looked at things like 10 minutes, five minutes as well. And then you start to see just how much money you're wasting just by waiting, just wait time, because that's dead time. Like engineers, They often don't go and do something else, or if they do, then they've completely context switched and then you're losing again. But that really was a a really amazing model to then use to management and say, listen, if we have 300 engineers, like we did say six months ago, if your build takes 30 minutes, you're losing about a million dollars. I can't remember if it was every quarter, every year, but it's it's a lot of money.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that is a lot of money. And you're working on another model now that's similar, like a cost of incident model?
1: Correct. Yeah. So we're trying to see how we can apply this to different areas of practice. So I also have the SRE team under my remit. And we're looking at like, okay, when we have an incident, how do we quantify the cost? Because often we'll talk about customer impact. And we might say, well, these customers were impacted. And, you know, this was the level of impact because the API was down for X amount of minutes. But that doesn't necessarily tell you like Again, like a more kind of like a dollar amount in terms of like, what are we actually losing in terms of uh, like people's time that are spent responding to the incident, trying to figure out like what would be a, a reasonable measure in terms of uh, kind of reputational damage, that sort of thing that happens during incidents. It's a harder thing to quantify, I'll be honest. But uh, again, it's like uh, I'm, I'm determined that we'll find a model that gives us something just like we did for our CI/CD pipeline.
0: I really love the your cost of delay and cost of incident models that you're working on. They're extremely useful for sort of creating a business case around things that are visible, but maybe not easily quantifiable. So I'm curious to know how you're approaching organizational problems in a similar way, right? Like tooling issues are fairly straightforward to understand and measure and quantify, whereas the organizational issues can be a challenge. And I have this example when i worked at github we were really focused on our monolith build times specifically and as part of our devx efforts we actually went across the company and started just talking to leaders and developers about what was slowing them down and despite the fact that we were really interested in the build time sort of problem one of the things we heard When we ask these teams, what's really slowing down your lead time the most, they would share things like requirements quality or the product management process and churn in their process. And so I'm curious about your team's charter and how, if and how you're thinking about approaching some of those more organizational problems or cultural problems.
1: We have had a kind of uh, an organization pop up not that much longer ago than DevEx kind of products and jobs. I don't know if they specifically call themselves that but they definitely do function a lot like that. So I think that there will probably be a tight relationship with them in terms of when we go out and collect information from teams, because we'll be doing a lot of qualitative research and working with teams. I'll also say not just working with engineering, but also with products, because I think that that's fundamental, is that we need to understand both sides of the argument uh, for why things might be painful, might be slow, things that we can improve. And so we'll be speaking to both sides of, of R&D on that front, and then bringing that feedback into probably more like Inch and products to kind of look at areas of investment and where to spend that kind of effort trying to fix process problems, specifically the DX team right now, because it's so new. I don't know how far into that area it will go. I would love it to. And the thing I would say as well is like, it starts off as one team, but I, I could really see DevX becoming its own group at Sneak. Comprised of more than one team, but for now, it's working closely with this prod and um, jobs team, and trying to help them figure out what to put on the table next.
0: Building on what you shared about how you're thinking about approaching some of these organizational problems, I'm curious how you just see overall the evolution of the developer experience function over time. Do like you envision it expanding into several teams? You know, how do you kind of see the journey from here?
1: I guess the way that the team's remit is set up today as well is that because I look after the infrastructure group at Sneak. So some people might look at that org design and say, that's a weird place to put developer experience because it sets alongside cloud platforms and SRE. And what I would like to see it evolve into kind of like this analogy of give your Legos away a little bit, but I think that it should become its own group because it needs to look at the developer experience holistically. And like right now, the way that the Teams remit is set up, it's focused a lot on kind of infrastructure layers, this internal developer platform that we've built, CICD, but I think it could expand a lot more because there are probably lots of needs on the front end, for instance, that we won't be serving immediately. And there's a lot of already internal talk about like, should DevX own this? Could DevX help with this? That's a hard thing to often answer because the people that I've hired into the team have specific skills. <laughs> And so like when we're asked to do JavaScript, it's like, well, there might only be one expert on the team that, that kind of really knows JavaScript. So I think like what I'd like to see it expand into is more than one team. I don't know how it will end up looking, but these two teams where they can have a good uh, kind of expansion into serving all of the developer, the needs across the whole um, kind of lifecycle, but the stack as well. Probably hiring a few more um language experts into there as well, like Go, Python, and Node.js, for instance. that's kind of like our core languages at sneak, and just having more expertise around that. But also, you know, we having just done this domain modeling exercise as well, it's been interesting because I think like, wow, there it's the team that is being spread across quite a few different areas and systems, for instance, in terms of ownership. There's also like questions around like GitHub ownership and you know, how do we make sure we've got the right kind of information architecture there and that people are getting the right access? And there's other questions around, like one of the most recent things was around like our feature flagging capability at Sneak and should DevX be responsible for that or at least be involved in that. And so these are all areas I'd like to see them actually expand into, actually. Um and like you said before, that last question you asked me as well, that's that's absolutely an area I'd like to see them move into is like. The more structural issues of the day. It's not just about tooling, it's absolutely about people process and tooling. And so we need to look at all of those holistically and kind of find what I would say, like, use the systems thinking, like, where are the bottlenecks? Where are the inefficiencies? What is making, like, to be frank, what makes their day feel like it sucks, and like, make it better? So yeah.
0: What is the landscape of sort of tooling at Snake, aside from you mentioned the internal developer runtime and the monolith and the builds. Is there like a long tail of other things that the DevX team should be potentially owning or driving?
1: There's not so much of a long tail, at least that I'm aware of. These things are always hard to have a complete handle on when you have this many engineers, right? That's kind of the curse and the beauty. But I think my vision really is about paved roads, paved paths and focusing more on that like providing the kind of the paved road that other engineers can follow but also then providing like ways that they can step off of that in a in a safe way that doesn't also result in kind of just like a proliferation of shadow engineering shadow it that we then can't get our get a handle on but also even from like a, a spend point of view right like uh, one of the things i saw when i first came into sneak was like my SRE team were running a in-house Prometheus stack, which unfortunately fell over a lot. Mm-hmm. And I just said, like, let's outsource this, let's move this to host adoption, because this is not a good way to spend our time. But because of the fact that that platform was so unstable, other teams had started spinning up Datadog. <laughs> but then you're like, wait, hold on, we're paying for the same capability twice. And they're just getting slightly different outcomes from it. And one team thinks it's more stable than another. And so it's like, okay, how do we reduce that kind of surface area in terms of all the the different systems and capabilities we could have? And I think infra drives a lot of that actually for certain. And I think developer experience can kind of also say, okay, well, here's the paved road. We're going to make this so easy for you and so good. Don't want to do anything else unless there is a really critical reason for doing that. And that's what I think developer experience is a lot about is providing that kind of, like I said, cognitive load is, is really lowered, but also it's like out of the box defaults, just get up and running.
0: And so kind of looping back to your original charter of making developers lives easier. How much of that do you think your team can impact as opposed to Things that local teams need to just do, you know, within their local area of the code base or their local, you know, spin-off of one of the, the paved path sort of you know, environments. I'm, I'm curious, where does that sort of responsibility or potential lie? So I would say
1: like developer experience exists everywhere. You don't need a core team necessarily. Like developer experience can never be owned by a single team. What I think we do by having these core teams is that we bring the practice in and we say, this is what good looks like, getting teams to start adopting those practices and advocating for them, almost becoming like a champions set of champions across the organization that drive that same culture and practice within their own teams, because we can never be in all places at one time. We're just too small compared to the rest of the organization. I would also say if, if these type of areas are getting too big, it's probably a, um, an anti-pattern, probably an organizational smell. That is then becoming like the kind of uh, bottleneck to to doing these kind of standards and practices. But I would say like uh, it's also about like what they call like nudge theory, nudge culture, which is like if you see an engineer doing a good thing over here, other engineers are going to be like, hey, I want to do that good thing. And so that's what I would like to see is like naturally it's just kind of organically turns into a, you know a culture where we want to drive better standards and, and practices through the work that we do. I think DevEx can bring that.
0: So what's the state of think today as far as, you know, in your perspective, are local teams aware of sort of their own developer experience? Are they making sufficient efforts to improve it?
1: That's a good question. In some cases, yes. And in other cases, no. <laughs> Probably like every company. Sometimes you'll see, especially in an organization this size where we have about 50 teams, some teams are very much caught up in the, we need to ship stuff. We just need to ship, just need to ship, just need to ship. And then there's other teams that are taking a much more critical look at, okay, it's not that at all costs. And that also, it comes back to bite you quite quickly as well. There's this really kind of cool concept that's happening in my area, the wider platform division, which is it's a process called shape up. I think it came from Basecamp and they started doing something called cooldown sprints, which I think is actually really cool and something I'd like my area to try and adopt actually as one of the things that came out of shape up. Because it's like uh, there's this book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and book really got me thinking about like there's the doing time and then there's the thinking time, and engineers can kind of get caught in nothing but doing time, and then they don't pause to reflect on the constraints that they have, the trade offs that they're making, um, and where those investments should really be made. And so I do think like we could see even like from a process standpoint, that kind of wider adoption of like, okay, we purposely take a pause every whatever cadence, six to eight weeks to consider like the next uh, tranche of work ahead. And what should we do about that? Like, how should we approach it? Should we be carving our time investment in a different way as well? Like, yes, we still have to launch some product features, but perhaps some portion of that is allocated to Quote tech debt, right? And the other things that I've seen cropping up at Sneak is a lot of guilds, which has really been for me a good thing to see because it's like it's a it's a place where we can say, okay, there's a class of work here that seems underinvested in, that we would like to be better at, that the engineers that opt into that guild can spend a portion of their time on it. And we've also said that all guilds have a an executive sponsor, as well, which is good, so that we make sure that there is buy-in to that time that they spend.
0: This kind of cool down process, this is something you're seeing potentially be implemented org wide or just sort of in pockets?
1: I think it might be a great thing to try and look at org wide. And this is where, you know, when I talk about nudge theory as well, it's like, you know, we do these R&D monthly sessions and we do demos and stuff. And it's like, we they're not always just about the tech stuff that we did or the products that we launched. It can sometimes be about behavior, culture stuff as well. And this is where it would be great to see like, a presentation around stuff like this, like why did we implement this inside our platform division and how might that help you? Because I think that's how it starts. Like, My area, for instance, has driven a lot of different norms and practices that got adopted across Snyk, like um, some processes around architectural design, ADRs, some practices around story mapping, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think like, it, it starts with one team and it can evolve to kind of become org-wide.
0: You mentioned sort of there are some teams that sneak that probably are more aware and focused on developer experience and others that aren't like, do you see it as your team's job to sort of evangelize the culture around caring about developer experience? Or does that need to come maybe even from higher up from product leadership or uh, even just general, you know, executives?
1: So that's a really interesting question. I think it has to come from all of those areas that you just mentioned is the truth. Because the more the message is there, the more it's present, the more it resonates, I think the more likelihood there is for success. And so like, there is already a lot of sponsorship. Like I said, it's uh, the kind of SVP, chief product officer kind of area, kind of uh, level, I should say. Executive level, still working on that. (laughs) But also, you know, Sneak's an interesting organization because it's a technical one. We build tools for engineers, right? We're almost like a developer experience company we build security tools for engineers. And so we have a DevRel team in the wider kind of open source community. So it's like taking those same kind of evangelistic practices and just applying them internally. And so we also work, have started working with that DevRel team as well to kind of say like, how do you work? And like, what could we take? And what could we try? And I think one of the things I would touch on that I tell my own teams, which I think even stands a greater chance of success is like, Advocating for yourself is okay, but finding your early adopters, your zealots, to then go and shout about the great work that you did, that's so powerful. That's where you want to end up, is like getting those internal, those couple of internal teams to go. I was an early adopter, and I'm just going to say, this is amazing. And we've had that happen actually for our platform a couple of times as well, where, you know, we've had teams say, listen, there was. particular example like there wasn't this particular cloud resource available to me so i created the terraform module they had a playbook followed it did it it's done took me like two hours and it was like for a lot of people they thought that that was like an impossible feat (laughs) so it was good to have that person go to a a demo session and actually demo something about our platform for us (laughs) it was a demo all about something he'd built for a platform you know kind of extending the ecosystem so like i think that that's a much more powerful message than us going hey look at our great platform or hey
0: look at our great standards i love that story well crystal it's been such an insightful discussion i really appreciate you coming on the show today i really enjoyed this conversation
1: yes thank you so much for having me it's been a a real pleasure to to share my experiences with you